Thankful to be with you all this morning. As was mentioned, um, we are in a season now called Easter Tide. My name's Peter, if we have not met, and I'm so glad you're here. Just want to extend another welcome to you. And Easter Tide is a season like Lent. Some of us are learning about the, the calendar and uh, the Christian calendar and the different seasons within the church. And so Lent. Uh, was a season where we did a lot of reflecting. We thought a lot about um, the sin in our lives, the brokenness in the world. It's a time to really prepare for uh, the cross and get ready to uh, really understand the meaning of the cross and what happened when Jesus died for our sins and forgave us on Calvary. Um, and then we moved into the Easter season, and Easter tide really began on Easter, and then it goes for the next 50 days all the way until Pentecost. And I think one of the interesting things um, as we journey through the Christian calendar is that um, this emphasis in the Lent season on the things that are sad, the things that are difficult in our lives, the sorrows in the world and in us, uh, is just as important as the season we're in now where the invitation is to really meditate on God's joy, um, the joy of the Lord, the joy that is made known to us as believers because Jesus rose again. And so the challenge in this season uh, is, is opposite of Lent in many ways. It's really actually think about uh, what makes us full of joy. What, how do we sustain joy for 50 days all the way until Pentecost, a season of joy. And based off of your personality, you may be more of a Lent-type person. I, I have a lot of those folks that are my friends, you know, that, uh, that like the dark stuff, that find it authentic, that find it important to really reflect and tell the truth and, and to really name all of the deep, dark things that are difficult. And then there's others that are happy clappy, right? People that are just full of joy, full of happiness. I, uh, my, uh, my godfather, a great mentor of mine, uh, is a man named John, uh, excuse me, Jim Ludwig. That's his son, John. And uh, Jim is what we call Papa Fun, because whenever you go over to his house, he's always making more food than needs to be made, and he's always given a present and just bringing the fun. And so uh, what the, the calendar does is it really invites us uh, to tailor our emotions um, to what God would have for us in different seasons. And some of us maybe grew up in churches where it was always happy, clappy, and we were happy all the time. And so maybe there wasn't space to acknowledge the difficult things in life. But then maybe some of us are more uh, uh, find that, you know, we need to be invited out of a season after this last difficult season of a lot of mourning and a lot of change, again, to be uh, welcomed uh, to this idea of joy and to say it is okay to embrace the joy of the Lord. It is okay to walk in the joy of the Lord and to represent the joy of the Lord, to sing about it, to celebrate it, to have fellowship over it and to share it with one another. And I think our text this morning um, is one that will help us to meditate on this season, to foster joy and to understand what true Christian joy looks like. So if you would, I'm going to pray and then we'll dive into the text. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be present here with us in this moment, um, this moment 
of uh, understanding your word, of understanding who you are, uh, because you have uh, sent your son Jesus uh, to teach and to instruct, and also to create a church, a church that has sustained and grown by leaps and bounds because of the power of your resurrection. And Lord Jesus, as your church, we pray now that we would experience that same power and to know the same joy that is revealed um, in your scriptures, that it would be present here now with us by the reading of your word, the preaching of your word, and the communion, and the worship, and the prayers that we pray together. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Acts chapter 9 should be a familiar text for you. I'm going to do 19 verses. It says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he, may, he, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by, his, by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to, to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, the arch enemy of the early Christian church being stopped in his tracks and totally transformed by the radiant splendor of the glory of God should be a good meditation for us on joy. 
One of the things that really comes up, actually, because this is such a historic story, such a pivotal moment in the life of the early church, that it sometimes can become standardized and viewed as prescriptive rather than descriptive, meaning that, as, as Edgar was mentioning, that there's a way by which this is such a powerful conversion story that some have come under the understanding that this is the only way that somebody could be converted, that they would be going one direction, God would stop them in their tracks uh, with the radiant light of God, and, and then you'd be completely changed and transformed. And so if you don't have that story, maybe you don't have a conversion story, but I would say that that's always a dangerous thing to do with the Bible is to think that our story has to look exactly like the story we hear in Scripture. In fact, no, each and every single one of us is made uniquely, and as you shared, you have a different way in which God met you because he knows who you are and what you need, and he knows exactly the things in your life uh, that you're called to do. And so many of us don't have the same story, right? Because we didn't start out maybe as arch enemies to the way of Christianity. So that just there in the story can't be exactly a one for one, right? But there may be some really uh, significant parallels within the story. And in fact, one of the things that the story does more than anything else is teach us about the character of who Jesus is. And by understanding the character of who Jesus is, then we can understand really how uh, Jesus works in the world and in our lives. And that helps us so much to understand how to be with Jesus and to know um, how he's working in our lives and working within the church, working with us collectively as we seek to see the kingdom of God here on earth. And so it's important at the beginning to just name uh, this remarkable story and this dramatic testimony that has captured the imagination of the church is a wonderful story. In fact, it has two significant benefits we can see right at the beginning of the story. And we really need to meditate a little bit on God's providence in the story because we see that, that Saul in the story up to this point is the bad guy in the story. He really is the arch enemy of the way. They didn't, the early church didn't have a name other than they were the followers of the way of Jesus. Something about what they were doing looked so much like Jesus. They were just identified by this way. And, and as they were carrying on in this way, Saul saw them and was so certain that they were wrong that he had dedicated himself to stopping them. In fact, he brags that he was the best. He was so zealous uh, at stopping early Christianity that he said he had the most significant credentials of anybody. He's appealing to the higher-ups. He's probably really ambitious, trying to make it into the Sanhedrin. He's doing everything that he can to stop this new way. And what the story shows us is that it's not the zealousness of Paul that's the issue, or Saul at the time. It's the direction that he was going in. And it was not a direction that was too far off from what we know in our Old Testament, right? He was a worshiper of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was committed. Actually, many scholars believe that he viewed himself as like an Elijah figure, that what he saw was his job was to protect the old way, the law. 
the way that Elijah did. You know, Elijah had great battles with Jezebel and the prophets of Baal and significant uh, ways in which he needed to protect the true nature of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the people uh, that were under that banner. But then as the New Testament came in and Jesus came into the church, he died, he rose again. There was a new era ushered in for the church and this new way had come upon the scene and Paul, uh, Saul was blind to it. He couldn't see what was happening. He didn't understand it. And it's really interesting to think about ways by which uh, we could be zealous. Uh, and that's not the, the issue the issue is the direction for which we're zealous. And if we are zealous for the wrong thing, it can become really dangerous and detrimental. Um, one, there's so many examples in our current culture, but one that uh, Katie and I have been paying attention to is the story of Elizabeth Holmes. Maybe you know the story, maybe you don't. She started a company, a tech company called Theranos, um, some years back and raised billions of dollars. But when she was at Stanford, uh, she came up with this uh, medical device, this technical medical device. The only problem was that it didn't exist or work. And she was told many times that it wasn't going to work, but she just kept going, she just kept going, she just kept going. As you watch this show, you're so amazed that how far somebody can take an idea that they know is not real because they're so committed to it. They want it to work so bad, they can become so zealous for it that they actually can create devastation, billions of dollars of devastation, just because they're so committed to this one idea. And the whole time you're watching the show, you're just like, can she please just stop? Just stop. Just say it's not true. Look how many people are being hurt because you're going in the wrong direction and you're not willing to just admit it. Not willing to just say, yes, I made a mistake. Pride is a very real and powerful element and that's an exaggerated story we see in our world, but there's a way by which we can understand how this kind of pride lives in each and every one of us. And so Saul's story at the beginning shows us the way in which somebody can be zealous and really close to what is true and important, but just enough off that so much damage can be done. And so that's why we do the Lenten season, right? That's why, uh, like, if we're using the tide metaphor here, I'm a surfer, so uh, you're going to have to work with me here, that if you go out to PV Cove on low tide, as you stand out there, what you're going to see is all the exposed rocks that lay under that ocean. And you see all the crags, and what's really good about it is if you surf long enough, you begin to learn, okay, where on these rocks are the places where I'm not gonna cut my foot as I go out into the ocean and try and get out to the waves, and I can understand, okay, here are all the exposed rocks. Here are all the brokenness and flaws. Here are all the difficulties um, on this low tide. And, and that's important to know and to name. What are the things in our lives that, that get in the way of us when we're actually trying to work, we're trying to do the right thing? Saul was trying to do the right thing. He was doing it so well that it was causing devastation. 
Uh, the writer Parker Palmer has a beautiful story I want to read to you about how he was discerning for himself uh, what he should do with his life. And it has to do with a, a Quaker practice that he had undertaken called a clear, clarity committee, which is if you're a good Quaker, one of the things you do is to discern your life's call, which could be good for anybody to do, is you call a, a clearness committee and you, you get about 10 people around and you say, this is what I think God is calling me to do. And then they spend like three hours just asking you questions to reveal in your answers whether it's the right direction to go. And this is Parker Palmer's story about his experience with that. He says this, During my tenure as a dean at Pendle Hill, I was offered the opportunity to become the president of a small educational institution. I had visited the campus, spoken with the trustees, administrators, faculty, and students, and had been told that if I wanted it, the job was most likely mine. Vexed as I was about the vocation, I was quite certain that this was the job for me. So as is the custom of the Quaker community, I called on a half a dozen trusted friends to help me discern my vocation by means of a clearness committee, a process in which the group refrains from giving you advice but spends three hours asking you open, honest questions to help you discover your own inner truth. Looking back, of course, it is clear that my real intent in convening this group was not to discern anything, but to brag about being offered a job that I had already accepted. <laughs> for a while, the questions were easy, at least for a dreamer like me. What is your vision for the institution? What's its mission in the larger society? How would you change the curriculum? How would you handle decision-making? What about dealing with conflict? Halfway into the process, someone asked a question that sounded easy, but it turned out that it would be very hard. What would you like most about being president? The simplicity of the question loosed me from my head and lowered me into my heart. I remember pondering for at least a full minute before I could respond. Then, very softly and tenderly, I started to speak. Well, I would not like having to get up, uh, give up my writing and teaching. I would not like the politics of the presidency, never knowing who your real, real friends are. I would not like having to glad hand people. I do, not respect simply, uh, I, I do not respect simply because they have money. I would not like, gently, firmly, the person who had posed the question interrupted me. May I remind you that I asked you what you would like most. <laughs> I responded impatiently, yes, yes, I'm working my way towards an answer. Then I resumed my sullen, honest litany. I would not like having to give up my summer vacations. I would not like having a suit and a tie all the time. I would not like dot, dot, dot. Once again, the questioner called me back to the original question, but this time I felt compelled to give the only honest answer I possessed, an answer that came from the very bottom of my barrel, an answer that appalled even me as I spoke it. Well said I, in the smallest voice I possess, I guess what I'd like most is getting my picture in the paper with the word president under it. <laughs> I was sitting with seasoned Quakers who knew that though my answer was laughable, my mortal soul was clearly at stake. They did not laugh at all, but went into a long and serious silence 
a silence in which I could only sweat and inwardly groan. Finally, my questioner broke the silence with a question that cracked all of us up and cracked me open. Parker, he said, can you think of an easier way to get your picture in the paper? <laughs> and then he concludes, by then it was obvious even to me that my desire to be president had much more to do with my ego than with the ecology of my life. So obvious that when the clearness committee ended, I called the school and withdrew my name from consideration. See, pride doesn't just, uh, doesn't just affect us, it affects everybody around us. And so when God stopped Saul on the road to Damascus, he saved Saul and he saved all those Christians who were facing arrest, who were being persecuted. And it's so beautiful, the question and answer that goes into this experience. Could you imagine Saul as he looks up and he sees a blinding light of the splendor of the glorified Jesus Christ? this transcendent, awe-inspiring beauty. And then out of that beauty comes a question. Why are you persecuting me? And you see how Jesus personalizes the question. Jesus had already ascended into heaven, and yet he's personalizing the body of Christ. And he's saying that what you do in your persecution as you hunt Christians down, you're doing it to me. And this should be a great comfort for all of us here in the church who experience persecution, who experience suffering, who have been through seasons of long suffering. And at times, like the psalmist, we wonder, God, where are you? Why, is your, why are you absent? Why are you so far from me? And yet we see Jesus answer to that question in a moment of great persecution to say what is done to the church is done to me. And so even though it looks terrible and difficult and the suffering is real and should not be diminished, there is still a picture of joy here because the joy comes from communion. Joy isn't determined by a season of up or down. Joy is determined by being with Jesus. In fact, Jesus teaches us this on the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And then it says this, Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, joy looks different than we just assume it looks sometimes. And so it's important for us to be so uh, in the scripture, so uh, stooped in what God has revealed through Jesus to the New Testament church that we can actually begin to identify 
that when we're in the midst of our pain moment, that is actually a moment where heaven is with us, that Jesus is with us, and it is a cause for great joy. And then the stunning reality here in the story is that that Saul had done nothing right. That he is such a clear example of somebody who was doing everything in the wrong way, pushed to its furthest extent, and yet it wasn't some consequence in his story that brought his conversion. No, it was the awe-inspiring grace of God through Jesus, given to him freely. And this is really represented well in Ananias, who, when he heard the news, you know God challenges people, right? Because the thing, they hear the voice of God, right? And you would think, oh, I heard the voice of God, so no, not the time to push back right? But he heard the voice of God, and what he heard was so astonishing and so surprising to him that he needed to ask the question that would have been on everyone's mind. Really? Saul? Have you heard about him? Have you seen? We're all huddled together talking about how we are afraid that he is coming to town, and you're telling me that I'm supposed to go find him? I'm supposed to take care of him, lay hands on him, heal him, our arch enemy. You see, this story is what gives Saul, who becomes Paul later in the book of Romans, the ability to instruct the church in this way. In Romans 12, it says, bless your persecutors. Never curse them. Bless them. Never pay back evil with evil. Never try to get revenge. If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he is thirsty, something to drink. Do not be mastered by evil, but master evil with good. How did Saul learn this lesson? He learned it from Ananias. He learned about the character of the way this new way that was going to bless those who cursed them. And this is really in this Easter tide. Now, if you think of the tide coming back in, covering those rocks, this is really the image of the love of God covering over all those rocks, all those broken, crooked places that trip us up are covered now the book of Colossians, Paul also teaches us that our life is hidden with Christ in God. That now, because of the resurrected Jesus, that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And so all of those rocks disappear and give way to this new picture of an ocean of love and care and support. And so as we track with the Easter tide, we go from Lent into this season. My prayer is that you would feel connected. May you feel connected 
to the joy of the Lord who brings us together, who gives us all that we need in good times and bad, and who is the source of our true human conversion, who is the one who can change our sorrow into joy, our darkness into light. He is the one who has defeated sin and death and is worthy of this table and of this celebration that we share together. And so may you have this again, this Sunday, this great taste of who your heavenly Father is and what he has done. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we ask now that you would prepare our hearts um, as we sing this next song, Lord, prepare our hearts for communion. Join us uh, to your vine. Make us a part of uh, the exchange, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this beautiful, loving, caring, self-giving exchange that's happening in heaven. Help us to stay connected to this and to know true joy. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.